The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 454 for Monday, June 17th, 2013. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We answer questions, share tips, share cool stuff found. Have a blast together learning all new stuff about the Mac and Apple and technology and life in general. Here, back in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How are you doing, Mr. John F. Braun? Great. And I want to ask you, Dave, what, what, is, what was the first thing that, popped, uh, that pops into your head if I say 454? Uh, well, there's, there was a, a motor, right? Oh, no, a transmission yes. that was a 454, right? Well, no, you had it right the first. Okay. So I remember this because, uh, especially back in high school, I know a lot of gearheads and a 454, uh, otherwise 7.4 liters, which is massive. That's massive. Yeah. Was a engine that, uh, and I think 450 was another size that I remember. I think this was a GM uh, big block engine here, 454 okay. cubic inches. Uh, uh, and yeah, the cars typically went zoom, zoom fast. Yeah. And, pour, and just drinking gasoline like, uh, like there was no tomorrow. Oh, yeah, 7.4 liters. <laughs> I remember I had a 400. I think it was a Cordoba, and I think it got like 12 miles per gallon. It was a big engine, and eventually it got up to speed. Hey, but that car saved our butts. Heavy. This podcast might not exist today if it weren't for your Cordoba, you know. Ah, yes. The, the, the quick story is that you and I, um, basically, uh, the, the, uh, someone had had an accident and was blocking the roadway, and you and I were on our way somewhere, and... Um, Oh, no, no. This was yeah. a different trip. No, that's right. No, this was the trip. That's right. We were yeah. on the way to feed the ferret. Yeah. On the way back from or, or feeding the ferret. ferret. But whatever. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so anyways, a car flipped over. The lights were out. There was no way to see it. It was dark. And um, I'm driving along. I mean, this car weighed like five tons, I forget, or something. Oh, yeah. Many tons. Uh, and all of a sudden, we crashed into something. And we kept going, but it, it was obvious we hit something. And I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we pulled over on the side of the road because my left uh, uh, fender had gotten pushed in and I could no longer steer. And the cops came eventually, and uh, yeah, basically we had collided with a pickup truck that had uh, uh, flipped over. Uh, he claimed he was avoiding a deer, and we had the uh, front end that was partially in our lane. Yeah, he had, he had. I mean, they showed us he, he, that pickup truck had slid like I don't know, like fifty or seventy-five yards on its side. How fast that guy must have been going to uh, to to carry that kind of momentum? I don't know. It was pretty crazy. But we are if that had been the, the problem, of course, is that was a, there was a big ditch off to the to our right. And if your car hadn't been so heavy, hitting that pickup truck probably would have, you know, popped us off into the ditch. And I mean, we, you know, on that road, I think we were probably doing about 50. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Big cars are. Uh, well, we, we 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 will thank big cars for uh, for this show. And I had the rich Corinthian leather. Yes, you did have the, the Corinthian leather. I don't think it was really leather, but it was a very comfortable car. I mean, you leather. could fit you could fit a family in that car. I mean, you, you could, could put like four yeah. people in the trunk. Like the thing that like held more than a bus. <laughs> All right, today's minivans have bus. nothing on that. That's right. That's awesome. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. All right, Mark uh, writes. 
Hi, guys. I love iMessage, especially the delivered and read notices that are embedded in the app. When texting from my iPhone, the iOS automatically decides whether it is an iMessage recipient and sends through Apple's iMessage servers, or if it is a regular text and sends SMS through the carriers. That works just fine. However, iMessage on the Mac is significantly limited, as it will only work for iMessage participants, or not. Some Google foos suggest that using AIM accounts might do the trick, though it sounds complicated. I'd be happy to still pay texting fees. I just want one app that works on my Mac for iMessages and SMS, just like the phone. Uh, okay, and he says, as a slight tangent, might this not be enabled on a Mac as Apple is not trying is trying not to step on the carrier's revenues? No, I don't think that's it. It's that your Mac doesn't have a phone number to which you can assign SMS, um, and and that's something that's limited because of the the way the technology works, I believe. But um, but yes, you can send and receive SMS through AIM, which is, um, I believe, is the name of the product now. But but it it initially was short for AOL Instant Messenger, and the Messages app on the Mac uh, and iChat before it. So you know, iChat became Messages and got some additional functionality. But uh, but it can connect to uh, other services other than iMessage, and AIM is one of them. Yahoo, Google Talk, Jabber. Uh, are all part of it too. And ICQ actually can be done in, in sort of a, a back doorway as well. But, um, but yeah, you add your aim account you have to sign up for one. They're free. You add your aim account and then you can text people using what I'll call the aim to SMS gateway, though it happens automatically when you put someone's phone number in and a us based number you would put in with the plus and the one, and then the phone number. So, you know, plus one, two Oh six, 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 four, three, three, five, for example. And that would send an SMS to that number. We would never get the SMS if you sent one to that number. So don't try it or try it if you like. Um, but they will not see, they will see the message as having come from your aim account, not from your iCloud account. So if they reply to it, it will only go to your Mac. It will not go to your phone. So that that is one caveat of this. But but that is one way of doing uh, SMS on your Mac. So it's possible. It's possible. Yes. And I'm going to give you another way, Dave. OK, I go to do this eventually. So one, I love that aim hack because I remember doing that at one point saying, hey, look what I can do. I can, you know, send a text message with uh, what's normally just a person to person chat program. So that's very cool. Yeah. Um, now, there's some other things, because when I was looking into the different ways to do this, so one, Dave. I'll put it in our, uh, our room here. So most providers, or at least Verizon does, and I put the link to their page in the uh, uh, chat room. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the chat room, which is at MackieGap.stream. I don't know if you mentioned that. Yet. Uh, no, we'll say, we'll say hi to everybody in the chat room. <laughs> MackieGap.com slash stream. Thanks for joining us on this lovely Monday afternoon. So uh, most carriers, so Verizon, for example, if you search for Verizon SMS, It'll probably come up in the top map here. But anyways, if you see the page here, anybody can click on it. So anybody can send an SMS uh, from the web. Yes, that's right. Now, the, the first thing that occurs to me is that this could be open to abuse. But I'm sure if somebody abuses this, they'll love it. Because there's really no, uh, well, not that I can see traceability. I mean, you say, all right, here's my name. Here's the phone number of the person I want to get the SMS. And here's the SMS. Right. I suppose if somebody wanted to be a jerk and keep doing this and pester someone, they could. But then I think Verizon would clamp down on that. So. But this th this works, but it requires you to um, 
know what carrier the recipient is on. Yeah. Right. I mean, but it, but it works. You can also send to AT&T uh, phones by doing, sending an email to phone number at txt.att.net. So, Oh, and you know, I think Verizon has that too. That's another one. So a special they email do. address yeah. actually triggers an SMS. So that's cool. And then another thing I found, Dave, and now you can't get to this unless you're a Verizon customer. But so I went to this page and then on the right, it says, and I hadn't really looked into this. Um, and then on the right of this page that tells you about SMSing, though, you probably see it now. It says integrated messaging. Verizon customers signed into their My Verizon account can do even more with their messaging. Integrated messaging allows you to send and receive messages on phone, tablet, and PC with a single phone number and reply to messages automatically. Now, this is something that you have to be a Verizon customer. And actually, I clicked on the button that says, would you like to enable this feature? And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. Sure. And what I ended up with was, first, I got an SMS on my, my uh, iPhone saying, hi, welcome to the program. And then it brought me to a web page that showed me that SMS. So I think from this point on, if I use their Verizon messages platform, which sadly, on the page, they say, get Verizon messages from Play Store. What, what is the Play Store? The Play Store is the store for um, uh, Android people. Ah, okay. But I could I couldn't find a, a app. It's not available in the Verizon app. I mean, the Verizon app wireless app tells me lots of things, like you know how many text messages I've sent, I've received, how many calls I've made. But it's more billing oriented. I couldn't sure. find a way to use that app to look at this. So another proposal is that whatever ISP or provider you have, maybe offer a similar kind of yeah, unified I, I messaging found, platform. I found a uh, list of SMS gateways for just about every nice. cell carrier you can find. And, and so it's at Wikipedia. We'll put it in the, uh, in the show notes and the chat. So there you go. All right. Um, that's good. One thing I will uh, throw in kind of hearkening back to a semi recent show Enabling AIM in messages is required if you want to do screen sharing from within uh, Apple's messages app. You cannot do it with just an iCloud iMessage account in there. So that 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 enables all that stuff that you otherwise see grayed out in the menu. So while we're talking about AIM, I figured it was good to uh, to mention that. And now moving on to Karsten. Karsten says. I'm wondering if you can help me figure out how to make my app work again. My CFO, a.k.a. my wife, has an iPhone app called Smurf Life. One day, the app would crash when she tries to open it. No error message. It just closes. The app did, did not receive an update, and other apps were not updating at the time. No changes were made to the phone or iOS. The app outright stopped working. As luck would have it, Smurf Lite does not use iCloud or Game Center, so all the game levels are stored on the phone, and my wife is at some extremely high level. I've tried everything I can think of, and I cannot get it to work. I've tried a phone reboot and a reboot with the home button and power. I've checked to see if there's an app update, and there is not. I believe there may be an iOS application file that is corrupt. Knowing that all apps are sandboxes, Connecting to the phone, connecting the phone to my Mac and accessing the iOS applications folder directly may not help. I only see two options and would like your opinion before I do anything. I will take a backup. Smart. Uh, option number one that Karsten proposes is install the app on another iPhone for us and extract the game files and save them to the other iPhone and hope I replace the corrupt file. However, sandboxing security might get in the way and I might do more harm than good. Number two, wait until there's an update to the game, which hopefully will correct the issue. 
I'm not sure if an iTunes sync also synchronizes game data. If it did, then this is simple. Sync the phone, back up the phone, delete the app and initiate a sync, which will sync the game back. It is a pain when app developers do not take advantage of iCloud and Game Center sync. Okay, yeah, so this is an interesting problem because you can't restore just Apple provides no way. Let me say this the right way. Apple provides no way of restoring the data for just one app. And if you delete the app from the phone by any means, it will delete the app's data from that phone. So if you were to delete it and then redownload it or reinstall it uh, from your Mac using iTunes, your wife's data would no longer be there. In fact, it would just be gone unless you had it stored in a backup. Uh, so your choices are uh, in my, but when you restore from a backup, what happens is it actually, like if you wipe your phone and, and then restore from a backup, the first thing it does is it puts iTunes puts all the, the app data back out there. Then it redownloads all the apps. So if you wiped the phone and then restored from, you know, you wipe the phone by restoring a fresh firmware onto it and then restore from the backup you just made before wiping the phone. Uh, that may work because it is going to reinstall the app fresh with your existing data. It's going to reinstall every app fresh with your existing data and it'll take some time. But that may be the simplest answer because it will get a fresh copy of the app out there. Uh, so that that I know it's sort of tedious and long winded, but that one has the probably the greatest chance of working. Uh, but the other thing you can try, and you could try this anyway, in fact, you could even try this first, is to make a backup, uh, delete the app, then put the data back out there and reinstall the app. Actually, do it in reverse order. Reinstall the app and then overwrite the settings files. Now, how do you do that? Well, you'd have to pull the data out of your backup using something like uh, iPhone Backup Extractor at, at supercrazyawesome.com. Uh, and then you can put the data back on there. And there's a, there's a couple of utilities that'll let you do that. John, I'll, I'll let you speak to, to those because I think there's some good ones. But, um, but yeah, that, I, that, those are, that's my thoughts. John, what app would you use to put stuff back out there? I think the one I'd use, though I haven't used it very much here, but I think you and I had both... Uh, Gotten a promo code for this, Dave, and I think I, I hadn't really looked at it because, you know, I mean, we were just showered with these things. But uh, one day I decided to run it. Uh, it's a utility called Discade. And I think the reason I kind of ignored it, I'm like, oh, another disk utility. Yeah, you know. No, it's not a disk utility. It's it's a misnomer. Yeah. So I got to say, I, 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 I've seen other products is that it's, it's uh, it could probably use a better name to help convey what it really does. But what it really does is lets you get a view of all of the files and apps and pretty much everything inside your iOS device down to the file level. Um, so utility like this, and it's very well done. And so, so they're using, I think a lot of times they're, they're parsing what's stored in the backup file to figure things out um, like some other products, yep. but it gives you a full view of everything on there. And one view that they have, Dave is a storage view where you can click on the view then click on the app and then it'll show you the files that are associated with that app. And I'm looking at one here right now. And I think this is why it's, this is a viable uh, solution here. Like I'm, I, I have an uh, Amtrak app and I'm looking yeah. at the files that are within it. And so most of them are PNGs, but there's a SQ light file in there. I'm going to bet. Mm. Well, that may be the preferences for that app. That is certain, yeah. Some sort of data that it's storing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe there's see. another place I, I don't know of where, where you can also, uh, but I'm looking at other apps here. There may be another standard, but I'm assuming that's app data that's specific to it. It's in a SQL, I guess, SQLite yeah. uh, 
format database. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there you go. That's uh, I, hopefully that'll do it. John, I want to talk about uh, before we move on to Brian, I want to talk about our first sponsor for today, which is Barebones uh, at barebones.com. And Barebones, well, they've been making a lot of software for a lot of years, but the thing they make them, they, they have been making the longest is BB Edit. Uh, and BB Edit is, well, what I would call a world class text editor. It, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's an appropriate thing to talk about on the heels of WWDC because it's such a programmer's tool. Uh, you can, you can program in Objective C with this. Um, it, 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 but you can program in just about every language that I've ever heard of. Uh, and that's probably by design. They've, they're programmers over there at bare bones and they, you know, use this to do a lot of their own stuff. Uh, but what's cool is as soon as it recognizes what language you're programming in, it starts formatting the text visually doesn't change the file with any crazy formatting, but it starts formatting the text visually in a way that makes it really easy to understand without it being distracting. Uh, if you create functions, it puts little triangles in the, uh, you know, fold open and, and, and twist open and close triangles in the uh, in the sidebar. So you can like re- fold up a whole function and not have to see it, but it's all right there. Uh, it colors things in a really kind of subtle way that it just makes it easier for your eyes to flow through it. And of course, like I said, you can do this with with Objective C. You can do it with JavaScript. You can do it with HTML, PHP, Perl. You know, basically, you name the language Ruby, uh, and off it uh, goes and does its magic. So uh, it's perfect for that. It's also just a great text utility to have around. And now it's only fifty bucks. So it's you know, it's not like you have to pay two hundred like you used to for it. You can do all kinds of things. I sort text in it all the time. I count words in it. It is always open. I do a lot of editing directly on a server and I'm able to open files over FTP and then uh, it's got its own little FTP browser in there. So if you're like you have a dream host account or something, you can open your files, edit them. And when you hit command S like you would, because you're totally trained like me to hit command S to save something because we're not quite in the mountain lion way yet. Uh, when you hit command S, it saves it to the FTP server. So there's no step two, right? You just hit command S and it is saved live on the server or whatever, you know, wherever you've saved it on the server. If it's in staging, then it's in staging. If it's in live, it's in live. And that's, that's what it does. Uh, so check it out. Barebones.com. You can download a uh, free trial there. And then you, when you're ready to buy, you can either buy it there. Or if you're more comfortable, you can certainly buy it in the Mac app store. It is available in both places. It's the same price in both places. Uh, and that's it. BB edit from barebones.com. What are you waiting for? Go buy it. You can hit pause right here. We'll wait. All right. Welcome back. Now you've got BB edit. See how much, see how easy that was. Thanks. And uh, thanks for supporting our sponsors. We appreciate it. All right, John, go to uh, Brian for me, would you please? Brian has a problem. I'm going to help him. I think. Um, very timely. So dear Dave, John and the occasional pilot Pete, here's my quandary. My boss who is a heavy blackberry user has a Kindle and has just replaced it with an iPad mini 4G. I've been charged with the task of transferring the contact list. The boss is not a tech in any sense of the word, nor do they have any other Apple products, uh, nor do they have an iTunes account or Gmail or uh, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I doubt the BlackBerry has ever been backed up. What is the simplest way for me to transfer the contacts to the new iPad mini and create either a sync or backup for one or ideally both iPad mini and BlackBerry? Thank you. And we're going to cut them off here. All right. 
So one, uh, for people that don't know, the BlackBerry is a uh, uh, iOS-like device. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think people probably know what a BlackBerry is. Yeah, but but no, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, well, they've they've come upon rough times here. They were they were the first to do email on a phone on a mobile device. Yeah, that's what every guy everybody got every uh, all the ADD people. Yeah, yeah. BlackBerry is one of the first things that enabled people to get their emails almost instantly, no matter yeah. where they were. So. Um, I found a wonderful article, Dave, that I think summarized it here, but I think the uh, easiest way to do it, well, to at least the, the thing is he has multiple questions here. So I think one question is, how do I get data from one device to the other? Sure. Just a, one, is, a copy of, of, of it to, right. to the iOS device. Yeah. Okay. How do I get it? So again, we'll link to this IT world article. It's very good, but um, it described... And I would agree because you and I have suggested in the past here, but for, for this particular uh, scenario, I think Google Sync is a wonderful solution. Oh, that's brilliant. Now, it, it's not fulfilling all of the requirements here in that it, it will provide, because what happens as far as I can tell is it basically it, you copy your contact database to their storage and then whatever devices are signed up with the service can draw from that and bring it into their. That's right local storage yeah that's pretty much it so it's stored with them which you know you depends on how you feel about that yeah um <laughs> they have your data you're anyway. okay with that <laughs> but basically what you, what you go to and i think if it's a mobile device what you do um and i think this is the same for ios is what is it? it's a special url i think it's m.google.com oh, it's actually changed you, you, um, we'll put the link in the show notes, but I, I start by going to, you can do it from your Mac now. And I think it's just google.com slash sync. And then you click on sync with a mobile device and dig one step deeper and I'll, I'll come up with it, but it is different because it's not doing the exchange thing anymore. Um, and, and you can, uh, you can, you can choose what you're syncing and all that good stuff. Right. Or actually, I think the one that they say here is probably a good place to start. So it's google.com slash mobile slash sync. I get you. That works. I think you'll get. Yep. Get you to where you want to go. And then it'll say, oh, you're a mobile device. And then it'll say, okay, you want to download the BlackBerry software. And then from there, you would, uh, you know, so step one, of course, would be to, you know, uh, perform that operation to sync the data to Google's cloud. And then, of course, you take the uh, uh, iPad, I think it was, iPad mini, and pretty much do the same thing. Yep. All right, so now you have the both the devices have the data uh, and cloud does as well. So that may be enough, but it sounds like he wants to do more and that he wants to take that. Though actually, I mean, if you have that data, then that data, uh, as far as I know, if it, well, then you need a service. So like, for example, if it was on the iPad, then I would say if you have iCloud, then that would provide, well, a, some redundancy. Yeah. That data would be stored somewhere else. Now, as far as storing the data locally... I mean, that kind of happens if you're part of, if you're using iCloud or another service like that. Well, yeah. So with Google, you're going to use card dev, uh, which is great because you don't need a separate app or anything on your iPhone. You just plug it in and we will put the instructions in the show notes um, or the link to the, to Google's instructions. So you, you set it up and you're, and you're good to go, but you can also do this on your Mac too, right? So you can use iCloud to sync from your Mac to your, to your iOS devices. And obviously that works. You can also hook, Google up there and you can do it simultaneously. So if you, if you have some contacts in Google, Google and some in iCloud, it totally will just, you know, sync them all and, and create unified contact records for everybody. 
And that way you've got your data locally too on your Mac. Cause you know, once it's synced down, you can back it up and, and all that good stuff. I would say another thing you may want to do occasionally, and I've done this occasionally. So if you are on a Mac, uh, then you will be running the uh, address book or contacts, contacts. I guess they, well, I'm, I'm looking at my older machine here. Mm. Uh, but either one of those does have an option in the file menu. It may be a little different on, on the other machine, but the one I'm looking at right now, you go to the file menu, you say export, and you can export your data, I guess, to either vCard or uh, address book archive format. Uh, vCard is, is pretty portable, so if you want to share data with other people, that may be a good way to get the data to other uh, organizers. Yep. Or address book archive is specific to that address book file. Um, yeah. So that that would give you uh, different forms of local backup. Yeah, that's true. Because you want to have redundancy. You don't want to have it just in one place. You, you may get be able to get away with just having in a Google cloud in the Google cloud, but I would say you want to take additional steps. Oh, so. definitely. And in, and this is as good a time as any. I'm always reminded when we're talking about having all our data stored in Google. Golden Hill Software's cloud pull, which we've mentioned as cool stuff found in the past, is a killer way to pull down all of the data for your Google account and save it on your Mac. Uh, so we'll put that in the show notes too. And, uh, and while we're talking about backups, John, I think that that leads us into uh, Walter. Yeah. Indeed. Hello there. My name is Walter. Uh, Long time fan here. Anywho, um, just wanted to uh, touch base as uh, I have a couple of issues, uh, uh, but I'm only going to think I'm going to go into one. I'm going to try to make this as short as possible. However, I am a long winded sort. Uh, I have a backup uh, scheme involving, uh, I have a music studio. Uh, I record cartoon music here for a kid's show on PBS. And I, um, I, uh, my backup scheme is uh, partially Sugar Sync and partially on my uh, Synology uh, 412 Plus. Uh, those are my off-site backups. I have on-site backups as well. Um, my question is thus. Uh, in, uh, regarding uh, backups of sensitive information, um, I had originally planned on using my Synology uh, to do uh, backups that actually had my sensitive information on it via a, a VNP, VNC, VNP, you know what I'm trying to say. VPN. Uh, virtual, uh, yeah, uh, VPN. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, VPN. And uh, I can't seem to get that to work. And I, well, from what I've read, that's the most secure way of actually backing up sensitive data. Um, so I'm curious if A, you agree with that, and B, if, if, if do you have, think of there maybe another way to do this? Because as far as the audio files and stuff, I'm not too concerned about security. If somebody really wants that many trombone files, they can have them. Um, uh, however, uh, as far as things like to have sensitive information, for instance, all the musicians' social security numbers and stuff like that, which I would like to have a backup uh, off-site, um, should I... Uh, keep going with the uh the vpn idea or is there some other option that is secure enough um you can cut me off here all right we will Uh, cut you off okay um yeah okay so this is interesting uh secure off-site backups is what you're looking for uh and yeah doing it with a vpn that's one way but uh, as you said, that's very, very complex. 
and you've got you've got all these pieces that you have to stitch together. Uh, the easy answer that I can come up with, and this assumes that you have uh, either computers at both ends or, as I know that you do because you said so, uh, a Synology disk station at one or both ends, uh, you can run CrashPlan. Uh, crash plan can run on your Mac. It can run on windows. It can run on Linux. And that's what's running inside your, your disk station. So you can actually have your disk station be a full participant in a, a crash plan setup. Now you, you may off the top of your head say, well, but that crash plan is backing up to the cloud. I don't want to do that. I just want to do remote backups. Well, that's also possible with crash plan. And here's the rub. It's free. You may pay for bandwidth back and forth. I don't know what your arrangement is with your ISP, but, uh, but you'd pay for that anyway, because you're already talking about doing this offsite backup, but you're not paying anything to crash plan. The software's available for free and you set up crash plan in both locations and you set one of them as the destination and you point the other to it by using uh, there's a little code that you put in with both both crash plan installations will pop up with a little remote uh, backup code and you pop that in on the other side and it will magically find it over the Internet and blast your data to it. And you configure what data you want to send and all that. Now, A, the setup is cake, right? And and so that's one benefit. But the other benefit is that CrashPlan encrypts your data before it sends it. Uh, so you've got to secure, your data is secure as it's being sent over the internet. And it's encrypted at the at the destination. So you can't get your data out of it without another CrashPlan client and knowing your key. So uh, you could, for example, you could back up your data to my house. And as long as I was cool with you blasting all this data at my network, that's it. And uh, I couldn't access your data. You know, it's your data. It's here. So I think that's going to be the easiest way to uh, to do it because it's just it's all built in for you. Um, so that there you go. Right, John? Um, I have something to add. Go. That's that's why we're here. <laughs> well, I want to break down this problem into two pieces because I think there there are two problems that you need to solve here. So one the one problem that is trying to be solved is how do I get data from one place to another and not have someone be able to steal that? Right. 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 And I think that's why he's talking about setting up a VPN because a VPN provides a secure tunnel between two locations. Right. And, and to be fair, you may be confusing my answer that you read in our. Whoa. Are you? Well, that was interesting for those of you that are listening along. Uh, uh, you heard me react once the power here went out and uh, it actually we had a huge storm blow through and uh, the power was out here for not that long. Maybe what, maybe 40 minutes uh, or so. But uh, but it's back. And so we're back and it's still Monday night, just or Monday evening, uh, just a little bit later. Hi, John. How are you? It is. It seems like so much time has passed. But I yes, know. It's still Monday evening. Well, I guess we can call it now evening. We can call it evening. It's no longer afternoon. That's right. Uh, post right. 5 p.m. So uh, where are we? I will tell you, I had just explained. Uh, we had uh, listener Walter asking about secure offsite backups and. You were about to head down the path of VPN and explaining that uh, you, you were going to break it apart into two parts. And I was saying, as we got cut off, that I think 
I, I was I was wondering, in fact, uh, if you were getting confused by the answer that I wrote him about something a little bit different uh, as opposed to his audio question, which is what the listeners had heard. No, the thing is, okay. it, it, it. Yeah, I may not have uh, bringing it up may, may be confusing. So let me tell you what my goal was here. So there were two okay. questions here. We hadn't answered the second part yet. Right. Uh, did he ask two questions in his one audio comment that we played for the crowd here, though? I don't believe well, I'm trying did. to refresh. No, I don't have he any did text not. here, but he did. Uh, all right. So the question, the essence of the question is, I want a secure offsite backup solution. Correct. And then you gave a very thorough answer describing how one could do this with crash plan. That's and right. A uh, disk station. Yeah. Now and we're caught up. What I, all right. What I wanted to do, though, is to step back and look at the two components, which could include VPN, but there are two components to what I think he's looking for is that he's looking for a secure backup solution. And I just want to yeah, that's right. be clear to people to, what defines a secure backup solution. And there are two parts to it, in my opinion. Yeah. So one is when you're getting data from one point to another, there's going to be either a network cable or a physical cable. Um, or wireless. Could, I mean, or wireless, yes. Yeah. So, so you get either physical cable, wireless, or whatever. But the thing is, when you go from one point to another, data is going through some medium, and there is always the potential for someone uh, who knows what they're doing to capture that data and you steal got it. it. Yep. Unless, and, and so this is part one of any solution, when you're going from one point to another, and I, I don't think you probably require this for a physical cable, because <laughs> the chances of somebody intercepting your physical cable traffic from your Depends on your environment. Well, I, I would say, relatively speaking, I mean, the thing is, a net, the network or wireless is way out of your control. Correct. Whereas, you know, at least a drive plugged into your computer. I mean, you're you're probably pretty sure oh, that no one's monitoring I, that. Sorry, I thought when you said physical cable, I thought you meant physical Ethernet cable, not like a FireWire or USB cable. Right. Okay. So to crystallize, yeah, any any uh, direct interface on the computer, that interface, you probably don't have to worry about somebody monitoring that sure. if it's a relatively short distance. Any of the other things we talk about here, which is either a network, whether it be internet or a corporate or home network. Um, well, again, maybe not a home network, but you never know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Depending on how many enemies you have. <laughs> um, so that's one part of it. And most products that I've seen, like the, the ones that you and I love using, um, whether it be Dropbox or SugarSync or anything that operates over the Internet, typically uses something called SSL to secure the traffic one, from one point to another. So in that case, you don't have to worry about it. And, and just to just to reiterate, CrashPlan does that, too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A lot of solutions. They don't have to. Uh, yeah. So. So. Um, yeah. Almost any of these services use it and email can use it. It's just a nice way to secure data from one point to another. So that's part one. Yeah. But my suggestion, though, is you want to pay attention to both parts here if you're building your own solution, especially. So, yes, this is all built into Crash Plan and some other products. So part one is getting from one place to other another. But then the part which I believe they also addressed or you addressed in your answer here. But the other part is or once your data gets from one point to another, how can you be sure that that data is safe? Yep. And that if somebody somehow got to it after you've transferred it, then what? And I think your answer, again, is that CrashPlan does this all for you or the CrashPlan Synology. No, um, it's just just that that's all handled by by CrashPlan, which is why I jumped to that as right. the solution. It was like, well, dude, we could build you a very custom, you know, con- conceptual thing. But otherwise, you just run this. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So what I'm just saying is that there are two things you got to pay attention to the security of getting it from one point to another and then the security once it's on 
the yep. place you want it to be. And that could involve encrypting the file. Again, a lot of products do this, but you may want to find a standalone encryption solution like uh, TrueCrypt off the top of my head is a very nice one. Or just uh, using, uh, just making a secure disk image with uh, or disk Or secure utility. disk image if you're just using it on a Mac. Yes, yeah, uh, TrueCrypt right. is cross-platform. Right. We touched on it before, but, but yeah, you, you, you want to make sure that you don't pay attention to one and not the other. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Because once so you get your two, data there, it's not secure anymore unless you have taken steps to secure it. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. So I just wanted, I, yeah, when I heard secure, I just want to make sure we address that. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. That. That's good. And then he had something asking about a VPN, which a VPN actually could be, and that's why I kind of babbled about yeah, it. Yeah. Separate VPN question, is, though. But yes. Which he didn't ask. No one has heard that except you. So, and me. Oh. So it's, it was a separate and, question. Okay. Are we going to do it or no? No. No, we'll we'll address oh, okay. that another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So getting back on, where are we here time-wise? Okay. Um, I, I'm going to jump to, we'll just keep going on the on the agenda here. A- Allison uh, Sheridan from the Nozilla cast uh, at podfeet.com emailed and said, in episode 453, you did a great job of teasing us about a great revelation from Alf Watt, the creator of iStumbler and former Apple employee who worked on the software for Apple wireless technologies. With bated breath, uh, I awaited this revelation. And uh, she says the revelation was that if you have a simultaneous dual band router like the Apple Airport Extreme, you should name both networks with the same SSID, uh, i.e. naming the network wireless as opposed to wireless 5 gigahertz and wireless 2.4 gigahertz but you didn't say why in my house devices will often choose the 2.4 gigahertz when they're capable of 5 gigahertz and i have to force them to flip over without knowing the why of alf's revelation i'm concerned the devices will simply misbehave without my knowledge okay uh good good point uh the interview with alf is almost the transcription of that interview is almost finished and probably by the time you're hearing this it will be so you can read all of that at uh at macobserver.com and it was a great interview really good geeky wireless stuff as you might imagine uh but in a nutshell alf says that uh his his quick answer after that was that you want um an ESS, which is an extended service set. And, and really by that, he said, you know, you want to let the computers do it because the computers, uh, and, and this is of course coming from the guy that wrote the software that runs on most of the computers and devices that we use, or at least his team wrote the software. Uh, so, you know, it, it's understandable that he would say the computer can decide this better than you can. And, and he's right. You, you know, uh, there are times when 2.4 is better than five and there are times when five is better than 2.4. The problem is if you, um, if you have them separate and you have a network named 2.4 and a network named five, the computer actually doesn't do any intelligent choosing between the two. If it sees both, it will choose whichever one is higher up in your priority list in the network system preferences. This is on your Mac. On iOS, you can't set the the preferred order, so it's going to choose. I believe it chooses the last one that you told it about, uh, and so that's actually not doing it intelligently, as as perhaps you you noticed. So by naming the networks the same, uh, it allows the com- the computer or the iPhone to then decide based on several other factors which one truly is best, and and go ahead and choose that, and off you go. So hopefully that answers that. Yeah, good. I think so. 
So it, it sounds to me like the client, depending on the client, may not be smart enough to make the best choice. No, the client is smart enough to make the best choice. That's what Alf's saying. That's exactly what Alf's saying. Is the client smart enough, but not if you have your networks named different things. If your networks right. are named yes. different things, yes. then you've got this, then it's just going to choose based on whatever order you have set in network preference pane. But if they're named the same, then it'll pick it. Not only will it pick the right, you know, five gigahertz versus 2.4, but if you have multiple base stations in your house that are all kind of, you know, wired together uh, and they're all named the same, it will pick the best one for a lot of reasons, you know, location, signal strength and all of that stuff. Right. right. Then I guess I'm wondering why Allison believes that, um, when the 2.4 is being selected, that's not correct. It may or may not be right. But because okay, two, I'm assuming for her that 2.4 is higher in her priority list in, uh, in the network preference pane. Uh, and therefore it's okay. just going to choose that unless she forces it to go to something else. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. But you're right. At times 2.4 may be better than five, depending on her distance from the base station and various other factors that, the software can reevaluate far more efficiently than you or I could. I'm not sure about Allison though. She's, she's pretty darn efficient. So right here. And she knows how I feel about her, uh, her upcoming uh, retirement. So that's good. Yeah. Um, not from podcasting. I don't think so. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, you know what? Uh, let's do our second sponsor here, John. So our second sponsor is one that John and I have actually been, uh, uh, wanting to tell you about for a long time, but uh, but it couldn't until now because we uh, needed to go through a process. And the sponsor is Warby Parker. Uh, now, on the surface, you might say, Warby Parker, aren't they the eyeglass company? Yeah, that's exactly who they are. And it totally makes sense for what we're doing here because this is, this is an eyeglass company that makes cool eyeglasses, uh, prescription glasses or non-prescription glasses. You can get uh, sunglasses or regular, uh, you know, just just uh, clear lenses. But uh, but the process that they have figured out is built to be simple, which it is. But it's also totally tailored for geeks like us. Uh, you know, the, the, and and the reason is they offer what's called home try-on. They have a home try-on program, and the way it works, it sounds crazy, but it's exactly what you're thinking. So, uh, the, but maybe with a little twist. So the first thing you do is you log into warbyparker.com and, uh, you start, uh, selecting, you start looking at glasses and you can choose either optical lenses or, or sunglass lenses. And then, and then you start kind of looking and you can upload a picture of yourself. So this is step one, you upload a picture of yourself and then you can see what these frames might look like on your face. Uh, certainly not perfect, but allows you to narrow it down. And then you narrow it down to five frames from there and put in your address and they send you those five frames and you get them at home. And John and I both went, both gone through this and, uh, and you get this cool little box with five frames in it and they aren't prescription yet, but, uh, but they're just for you to try on. And it's so much better to try these things on and you've got five days to, to, to hang on to them. If you make your decision in day one, that's fine. You can place your order right away, but, uh, but they'll give you up to five days and you try them on and you can do it 
and you can let your fr- family and friends see. You can see it in a mirror. You're not stuck making this decision in an eye doctor's office under the fluorescent lights with all the staff telling you you look great and everything. You know, you can kind of you get to go through this process in a little more organic way in your home. And and if it's safe, you could, you know, go out with them, if, depending on what your prescription situation is. Uh, I was able to my prescriptions pretty, pretty low. So uh, so I wound up getting prescription sunglasses and I was able to use the the frames a little bit kind of out and about and see how it worked. And uh, even without the prescription, it worked fine. So I knew which ones I wanted. And uh, and then you order. And they turned around really quickly and you can get uh, the same uh, shipping that we get. Uh, if you use the coupon code MGG, you get free expedited two day air shipping. Now, the frames, their whole concept is that, you know, glasses shouldn't cost as much as an iPhone. Uh, and uh, and so their frames start at prescription lenses, uh, optical lenses start at ninety five bucks. Non prescription sunglasses also start at ninety five and prescription sunglasses, I think, start at about one fifty. And uh, and there's a lot available at that price. You know, it, it's uh, they really are looking to keep this cheap. And for every pair of glasses that you buy, they distribute a pair of glasses to somebody in need. So uh, so this is WarbyParker.com. But John, there, were, there was a cool. So you have to go to your I want to make sure everybody understands the right way to do this uh, so that you get it right. Now, you have to get your prescription done at an eye doctor, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, and if you already have your prescription, then there's nothing more you need except when you're getting fitted for glasses, there's something called pupillary distance, or PD in the optician's world that needs to be measured. And typically your eye doctor won't tell you what this is because this is a magic piece of information that makes you have to go through them to get glasses. Mm-hmm. Now uh, I went and, and, and I'll let, I'll let you tell the story here, John, but I went and I paid my eye doctor. It was like 20 bucks to get him to do this measurement that took all of about, you know, four minutes, but it was fine. I paid him 20 bucks and I, cause I wanted to compare to how Warby Parker does it. And, uh, and my measurement was really close. So I would totally trust Warby Parker's measurement system, which John is high tech, I think. And that was my question. How, how are you going to get this measurement? Now, you, yeah, you could do like you did, Dave, but they provide what I think is a nice geeky tool to do that. So what happens is you choose the tool on their site and then it fires up your camera. So yes, I believe it's using flash to do this. So you, but it asks you, it says, you know, somebody would like to use your camera and then the green light comes on and then you see your face there. All right. Well, they're getting a picture of you. So that's a good start. But then you may ask yourself, well, how do I know how big this person's, how am I going to get this measurement, which I think is usually in millimeters? Right. Well, you need something that has a known size reference. And what they do is they ask you to hold up a credit card in front of your face and fit, um, and then you take a picture and then I believe you, you fit the some guidelines to the credit card because they know how big the credit card is. They then the second step is they ask you, OK, now that we know that move the uh, sliders to your pupils and then they will give you the measurement, which you then provide to them. But it was just so cool because, yeah, usually like I went, you know, the last place I got glasses, this guy has a very, you know, expensive looking piece of equipment that does the same thing. And they right. don't tell you what it is either. <laughs> so, right. Right. Yeah. So, so that was very cool. Very, well, very high tech way of doing it. We'll save you the 20 bucks. You, you definitely use their, if you, if you know your PD, then, then just put it in. But, uh, but it's a really fun process. And here's the deal. You get these five frames to try out. Obviously you have to send those back, but, uh, but you are under no obligation to buy uh, until you choose to buy. So you could send all five frames back and say, sorry, 
maybe you want to try more uh, or maybe, you, you know, you're done and it's all totally fine. But when you're ready to buy uh, again, use the coupon code MGG and they will upgrade your shipping to uh, free expedited two day shipping on the final purchase. And they make these glasses fast. I think I got mine ah, three days after I placed my order four days, maybe. Uh, so, so it was good stuff. So yeah, warbyparker.com is the place you want to visit. And again, coupon code MGG. So check it out. I'm, I'm stoked with my, uh, I got prescription sunglasses. I'm stoked for the summer. So maybe, uh, maybe a good opportunity for you folks to do it too. All right. Um, you know, John, we talked about, um, SSD and garbage collection and trim and all of that in the last show. And I, we had a couple of follow-ups to it. So I figured, I figured we'd just read yeah. through these. And I think I've changed my thoughts. Just okay. to let you know. All right. Well, let me read Alex's <laughs> thing. reading this, some of this. Okay. All right. Okay. So Alex says, uh, when I put uh, an OCZ Vertex 2 SSD in my pre-unibody MacBook Pro, I cut my startup time from several minutes to 23 seconds. At some later point, I realized I was getting back up to nearly 90 seconds to boot. I did some digging and found that there was a firmware update for the drive that would enable garbage collection. I had to boot into Linux to install the update, but after I did, and after giving it some time to do the garbage collection, I was back down to sub 30 second boot times. And uh, so I, I thought that was really interesting. That sort of followed along with our, with our discussion from, uh, from WWDC next last next week. No, we're not talking about the future last week. We can't comment on future podcast episodes. <laughs> Sorry. I like spend too much time around we don't, Yeah, we, we don't comment on future products. <laughs> we don't, com we well, don't we, comment well, we on We could comment on future podcasts. Obviously. That's right. It's a problem. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I, so do you want me to read this next one from Lonnie to... Uh, or, or do you want to you, go ahead tell us you changed, you said you changed your, uh, you changed your tune, yo. How, what did you change? Well, I did because, you know, when I read, so, so I just put together the show notes today, I'm catching up, but, um, yeah. after reading some of the articles from, so my, my initial standpoint, if people recall, is that I'm like, I'd be nervous about running one of these trim enablers cause it's, it, you know, it doesn't come with the drive and all that. Uh, and you should just use what's in the drive. Um, you know, what we just discussed, uh, well, it's, it's actually well, kind of good and bad to know that a firmware update was meant uh, was needed to update something that probably should have been working properly already. But okay, at least we got the update. Right. But um, but now that I think about it more, as long as my only concern was that if the drive doesn't explicitly support trim, then you know it's kind of dumb to apply a trim patch. Uh, but then the crucial article. So we we linked to two articles from Crucial. Uh, I think it's in their forms or. You know, and they're, you know, have a very good discussion about, well, no, you really should do both if you can. Yeah, that's why that's why I came around on it. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You and I both we, we both the same information brought us both around on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the worst that happens is that if you enable trim and it's not available, it you may waste a little time doing something that the drive doesn't understand. Right. Right. I don't know how much of an impact that would have. So, uh, so yeah. So I came around and now Lonnie. Oh, well, this is. Uh... Yeah. So just, you know, in, in this frame of mind, uh, this is a good question. Lonnie writes a while back. I installed a hybrid H uh, hard drive SSD, kind of like what you have, John, in my 2011 MacBook Pro. Today, I selected secure empty trash, as I often do on files dealing with clients. And I wondered, does secure empty trash work the same way or at all on a hybrid drive, given that the drive itself decides on whether it is storing the file in flash memory or spinning drive. Okay. 
secure empty trash. It's a great question because it kind of makes you, you know, it, 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 it's an awesome, it's a good question in and of itself, but it's also a great learning opportunity to kind of figure out and understand what layer things happen. Secure empty trash is an operating system function like trim is right, but it's not talking directly to the mechanics of the drive. Uh, what it, it and, and it works the same on all drives in that it doesn't know or care what kind of medium it's affecting hard drive, flash drive, even, you know, uh, thumb drive, right? It's all the same. Emptying the trash securely, uh, actually normal, empty the trash insecure, emptying the trash marks a folder or files or folders as deleted in the file system and does nothing more. Uh, and then it's up to trim on an SSD to go through and kind of clear out those spaces because as we talked about last week, when you went, when you go to write to an SSD, you, uh, if the, if the cell is not yet empty, it has to erase the cell and then write to it. It can't do it in one operation, which, which is why you want to use this trim or garbage collection or something. Um, but with a regular empty trash, the data is left out there. Secure empty trash goes one step further and writes new data in those cells and, uh, and, or blocks if it's a hard drive. In this sense, secure empty trash is actually less good for an SSD because it's doing a double write. Uh, or a seven times write or a 35 times write and writing to an SSD uh, is the thing that is limited, right? You have limited number of what's called write cycles, I think is the right term to use, John, right? Where that's good. Yeah. Okay. Where the SSD can only be written to a fixed number of times. It's a very high number, but still it, it, it is a limit. Uh, so this also means that even if you do a secure empty trash, right. And you write, even if you do it just once, uh, you know, with a one pass secure empty trash uh, or one pass erase, it says uh, this, you know, wh what happens is when the system goes to write to that block again, it has to erase it because there's data there. So what it would actually be cool is if you could if there was a way and this is what trim does, by the way, uh, to do a regular empty trash and then let the system say, hey, by the way, you're an SSD. So we're going to go ahead and uh, wipe out that space and get it ready for the next time we write to it. Now that's for a normal SSD. I don't know about uh, hybrid drives, John. Do they support trim? Does your drive support trim? Uh, it's a great question. I, yeah, and I don't even know how it would because it's constantly moving data back and forth. I would think actually in that situation, the internal garbage collection might actually be better because the OS doesn't know that it's this hybrid thing, a fusion drive. Yeah. The OS knows because the OS is managing that process, but, but with you, it's managed in the, or the, the, with the hybrid drives, it's managed inside the firmware of the drive. Right. Yeah. I did a quick search here and actually, because uh, what I have currently in one of my machines is a momentous XT yep. that has an SSD like portion, but it's not visible as such. So it doesn't mm. really apply to that drive. Well, and that's like, it's and exactly it, what Lonnie has. It's the same drive. Yeah. Okay, well, in that case, yeah, it, it, it's not an SSD in the sense that a hybrid drive is and that it, you could take the individual, um, or rather with the Momentus XT, you can't break out the SSD portion. Right. It, so it's, it's basically it's a, just a very big cache. It's a hybrid. It's SSD light. It's a hybrid, not a fusion drive. Correct. Okay. Yes. I just yeah, want to get our terminology it, uh, the same. SSD hybrid. So there's a mechanical portion, but there's also oh. an SSD-like portion. And I would say the performance is pretty much between 
based on the benchmarking that I've done and I've seen, it, the performance is pretty much between the sure. two. Yeah, it's faster than the mechanical, but not as fast. But the the advantage to me currently is that the momentous drives, or at least the one I got, is a seven fifty gig. I think they may have a larger one. Yep. Is that you're gonna if space is important to you, then I think the hybrid is worth looking at. So this is interesting because I heard your discussion on. Um on uh, Mac Roundtable, right? The the one just after WWDC or just after the keynote mm-hmm. during WWDC. And uh, and you were saying how you couldn't possibly imagine having uh, a, a laptop. You know, you were talking about the MacBook Airs. And you said, I couldn't imagine having a laptop with only 256 gigs uh, on board. And my MacBook Air has has that, right? I got the, the biggest drive I could, which at the time was a 256 gig SSD. And it's totally fine. I'm, I probably have close to 100 gigs available on it. So I'm curious what on your laptop is taking up. What do you use all that room for? My aperture library is currently about 150 gigabytes. So, so you my keep, workflow. You keep I your choose, aperture library on your portable machine. Correct. The entire library. Okay. That's why. <clears throat> that answers the question. Exactly. Okay. So taking up 150 gigs for just pictures mm. <laughs> doesn't leave a lot of space left. So, but, y- you know, and Lisa manages most of the household pictures here. So she has most mm. of them. But, you know, we put the bulk of the iPhoto. Li- we have two iPhoto libraries. Actually, we have three. I have one small one on my uh, personal computer on my on my iMac right Mm -hmm. and then lisa has one relatively small one though it it grows a lot faster on her personal computer which is a macbook pro and then we have one big honking library sitting on uh one of our various nas units this at this point in time it's sitting on the synology uh the disk station and and we use um iphoto library manager but we wouldn't even need to uh but iphoto library manager makes it really easy to copy um to move you know, events and photos from kind of the satellite libraries to this one main library. And, uh, and then that way we're not carting around. I mean, when we travel, we don't need every picture we've ever taken. And, and so we're, you know, we're, those live at home and we can access them from remotely if we need to, but rarely do I need a picture. You know, we just kind of dump stuff in. So, so perhaps there's, there's a, you know, another solution, maybe not for you. I mean, we all have to choose what, what works, but, that that might solve this problem of wanting to have mondo amounts of storage on what would otherwise be a portable computer. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, yeah. that's you. I know. That, right. How, yeah. The thing is I do most, uh, because especially when I'm on the road, uh, you know, either doing TMO or other stuff, I typically do photo processing on the, on the portable. So that's right. why I choose to keep the aperture. But you, I also but you do like you but, but do. You, but I mean, what I'm you could still do that just with a smaller kind of satellite library and yeah, then merge it in when you get back to, you know, home base. Yeah, I could. Yeah. But I don't want to. I know. OK. No, I just like and then what I do similar to you is that I'll create a uh, so an aperture. They have something called a vault and that's basically an aperture specific backup mm-hmm. of your stuff. And then every now and then. So I'll, po- I'll put that on an external drive and then every now and then I'll toss it over to the, uh, the NAS. OK. Okay. That is all my pictures, dude, from forever oh, yeah. and ever. Oh, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, you want to have, and I I actually, you, you know, I like I said, we store our big iPhoto library on the Synology. I back it up currently locally to a Drobo that's currently USB connected to the Synology. Again, using CrashPlan as sort of the mechanism. But I will, hopefully this week, now that Pilot Pete's back in town, I will put that Drobo at his house and it'll back up. It'll be an offsite, but, you know, 10 minute away 
backup um, of that. And then I also back it up to the Synology, to the uh, crash plan cloud, all of our pictures. And I know it's a ton of data, but I'm okay with it. You know, it's um, because if we lose them, we lose them. Then it would be terrible. So. All right. You want to, uh, you want to tell us about Keith? Are you ready for that? Sure. Should I do Mary first and then, uh, and then come back to Keith? Where's Keith? Wasn't that the one that you, uh, you added one in? Oh, that's not in this copy of the agenda, but uh-huh. record keeping is. Correct. Well, you know what? Let's, Keith. let's do Mary's I, thing. I, have it. I got it. Yeah. But Mary's thing relates to what we just talked about. So we'll, we'll keep okay. the topic the same. But I have Keith in front of me. Okay, so. cool. So, uh, Mary writes, I would like to set up a large screen on a new wall that will continuously show my iPhoto library. What do you think will work best, an Apple TV or a Mac mini? Uh, The screen can be up to 45 inch monitor or TV. Okay, so uh, this actually required this question's been in the queue for, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And I kept thinking, I got to sort this out. I got to figure this out. So finally today, uh, I went over to the house and kind of bounced back and forth. And the first thing I did was I looked and I went into computers on Apple. I went to the Apple TV and I went into computers and pictures wouldn't show up. I saw movies. I saw TV shows and podcasts, but no pictures. Uh, And so the only way I could get pictures to the Apple TV out of the gate was photo stream. And that's certainly doable. And that may work very well for what Mary wants, because you could create a separate photo stream. You don't have to use your main one, although you could, uh, but you could create a separate photo stream and dump things in and then just have that, you know, as your screensaver. And it works fine. I thought this is crazy. You know, why can't I get photos? And so I, I dug around and uh, I found something interesting that I had no idea was there. Okay. So you can use, um, Use home sharing to get your photos from your Mac to your uh, Apple TV. But the way you do it is first make sure you have your photos, uh, at least know where your photos are. Now, they could be an iPhoto, they could be an Aperture, or they can simply be in a folder on your Mac. This this method that that is an Apple prescribed method will work with any of those and probably other uh, storage locations too. Uh, then go into iTunes. Yes, iTunes, not iPhoto, but iTunes. Go to file, go to home sharing, and first make sure home sharing is enabled if you haven't already. Uh, and then the second option under the little home sharing submenu is choose photos to share with Apple TV. Uh, and you put, it pulls up this little dialogue and you check a little box that says share photos from and you choose, as I said, iPhoto or Aperture or a folder. And then you can tell it to choose all photos or selected albums, events and faces. And you can go nuts and customize what you want it to share and what you don't want it to share. Uh, and you can tell it to include videos that are in your iPhoto library or not. And uh, and then they're there and it works. Now, your Mac has to be on for this to work, obviously, because your Mac is the host. But uh, but it totally works fine. And I had no idea that this even existed until I started hunting around today and and uh, and found it. So. That's using an Apple TV. That's the way to do it. A Mac mini uh, would be even easier in that you wouldn't need your Mac, uh, another Mac on. Uh, you just plug the Mac mini into a, a display or a TV and, and store your photos there. But the Apple TV is so, I mean, it's way cheaper. You can get them for 79 bucks on, uh, on, from Apple at, on the refurb, on the clearance. Really? Thing. Oh, yeah. Then that would be. Now I'm going to offer another option. Okay, go for you, Dave. But I just thought it was cool. iTunes to share photos to the. Who knew? 
iTunes has to be running on your Mac too in order for this to work. Not your Mac too. Those are really old and wouldn't run iTunes. But I think Mac also. Right. Man. Now, if you want to do a slideshow, the other option, Dave, looking over at my machine here, is if you go to System Preferences, Desktop and Screensaver. If this is if she has a Mac Mini connected to the yes, television. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yep. Okay. Go ahead. Correct. Within Mac OS 10, which I hadn't. Uh, this has evolved over time because I don't recall it used to being able to do this. But if you click on desktop, what will happen is that normally you'll just see a pictures category under folders. So it's like, oh, okay, well, there's the pictures folder on your Mac. You want to pick stuff in here? So that's certainly one option. But then all of a sudden, if the programs are installed, uh, I saw a choice for Aperture. Oh, yeah. And iPhoto and Apple, which is like a but, but the most important parts here are, oh, Wow. So the desktop portion of desktop and screensaver and system preferences knows about iPhoto and Aperture libraries. And then there's an option on the bottom of the screen where you can check a box saying change picture uh, every however often and uh, randomize the order if you want. So just making it essentially screensaver is certainly another option because I think what they've done is that throughout the OS, they've made this thing. I don't know if they call it the media browser. I think they do because that's really what you're seeing in this box here. Right. Okay. Pictures, Aperture, iPhoto, other media that's eligible to be displayed by this portion of, of those preferences, I'll let you do them. So, so that's very nice. Now, it's only Apple, you know, it seems. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe it works with third party, uh, a non-Apple photo apps. Well, you well. can choose a folder just like you could for the Apple oh, sure. TV sharing and then it, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, to be clear, the Apple TV lets you set your photo source and it can be photo stream or this other thing as your screensaver as well, a screensaver for the Apple TV. So when you're not playing a movie, it, you know, kicks over and just rolls your, your uh, iPhoto wall of shame. If you, uh, if you like, I want to see a wall of shame. Well, it could be, it could be a wall of fame. could be a wall of hame, but I'm not sure what that word means. Uh, I do know though that, you and I, our listeners are are well paced because they've started listening from the beginning as they usually do. You and I are out of sorts because we took a break, uh, not entirely of our our choice, uh, at the thirty minute mark, and it is now the hour and five minute mark. So uh, our internal pacing is probably a little off. So it's time to wrap up. But but let's do Keith before we do that. And that's the Keith I said whose question I had in front of me, and I do so. Dave slash John. That's us. That's us. Uh, all right. So he wrote us a, 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 about a recent episode where we had a tip from a listener to use two different iOS devices as a video monitoring system for tracing housebreakers or other similar tasks. That's a great idea. And I've tried to do it before to monitor a pot on the stove, which I don't think will work, Dave, because a watch pot even remotely will not boil. No, data on Star Trek data proved that to be uh, untrue. <laughs> To continue, while I'm in another part of the house. However, I've never been able to get it to work. I've tried any combination of iPad, iPhone, MacBook Pro, and Mac Mini. I have a feeling that it's not working because I'm trying to FaceTime call, uh, trying to make a FaceTime call with my Apple ID from my Apple ID. Did your listener happen to mention how he got it to work? Was he using two different Apple IDs? And you know what, Keith? I don't blame you because if you set up FaceTime initially the way that it is configured, you will run into this problem. Because I think by default, when you set up FaceTime, it will associate it with your Apple ID email. Right? 
Yes. And of course, if you're on one machine and or if you're an, and, and I tried this today and I actually a little annoying sideline is I actually had to reset my iPhone because I couldn't convince my iPhone to authorize me to FaceTime, which is an operation that has to be done, uh, especially when adding, well, any email address to uh, to the FaceTime mechanism. Uh, it'll try to authorize it. And so it kept failing. And I looked in the support article, we'll post a link to it. And it's like, oh, and well, you know, the last way to solve this is to do a, a full restore. And I'm like, oh, great. Then it worked. So I was able to authorize my iPhone. And so what happens here is that the answer is you can, because both of these, both my iPhone and my MacBook Pro are under the same Apple ID. Right. So you can do this. But again, as I mentioned, the way they set it up initially, you cannot. What you have to do is that you have to somehow differentiate each device and the Apple ID is not enough. So what you do, and it depends on the, so, so if you go to the iOS device yeah, and you go to settings, FaceTime, and then there's a thing that says you can be reached by FaceTime at, and it'll probably have your phone number and your Apple ID email. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, what you do is you say, add another email. Okay. So what you do is you say, add another email. And then what it'll do, it'll send a verification. And I actually sent, this is my email from my old ISP. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be an Apple. It can be any email. But what it'll do is send a verification, I believe. Wait, no, I think it, I think it did send it to, to the email address. And like, hey, this .Mac account wants to add you. Is, is this cool? And so I clicked yes. Then all of a sudden in this list of you can be reached by Dave. Yes. Or you can be reached by FaceTime. Then another email address showed up. Okay, that's cool. So now I have more data than I had before. Or I have an additional piece of information that could distinguish this device from another. But then what happens is that both of the emails that I had, both my Apple ID and this new one, were had a little check mark next to them. But what you do is you got to pick one or the other. Disable one or the other. Okay. If you press on one. So you can't have them remove. all. You can't have them all enabled on both devices in order for this little trick to work. My experience is that that confused it. It still sense. thought yeah. that you're still the same person. But what I did uh, is basically, and a very similar uh, mechanism is in the FaceTime app itself on my MacBook pro. So sure. I started it up. I said preferences and it's like, Oh, okay. Here are all again, the IDs, either your phone number or email address is associated with this installation. Right. And you got to do the same thing. You got to click, you got to press on one or the other so that only one has a check mark to it. And by doing that, that created enough differentiation between the two devices where I could call, yep. although they were under the same Apple ID because one was my Apple ID email and one was my ISP email. Makes sense. It was smart enough to call from one to the other. Yep. But it is very confusing because out of the box, this is certainly not obvious. <laughs> big, big T in the chat room, uh, chimed in and said, uh, why not just get a second iCloud account, which you can do. And, and oh, it's, sure. it's important to remember when you're initially setting up an iOS device, it asks you for your iCloud account. And if you put it in during that initial setup, it will apply it to everything. It will apply. It'll do messages. It'll do your iCloud mail and backups and calendars and FaceTime, right? All of, and your iTunes store account. Right. It will all it, that one ID will be populated everywhere, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can go in and change any one of those. And you could probably have I, I'm, I'm pulling a number out of thin air, but but you probably you could easily have four different iCloud accounts set up on the same iOS device, maybe even six or seven uh, in various different places. So, yeah, you, you could just set up a different FaceTime account just for, say, your iPad or even just for your Mac. 
you know, but just for FaceTime and everything else could be the same. Your iTunes account could be the same, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, it's cool. Right. So, um, so to me, uh, to me, it was a technical challenge because I yeah. didn't really want to create another app. Well, you know, on the other hand, I, I have multiple Apple IDs, but I use them for different things. So I have one that I use for my stuff. Then I have another that I actually use for uh, one of my developer accounts. And then I think I have another Apple ID. So I have like three separate Apple IDs that I use for different things. Yep. But because these two machines are both registered under the same Apple ID, I'm like, oh, how am I going to pull this yeah, off? And no, that's how you good. pull it off. Cool. So the only thing is you need a email address, a functioning email address. And of course, those are, you know, free like candy. So sure. Well, and, oh, and uh, free. what am I saying? Uh, somebody <laughs> in the in the chat room is also saying you could use an email alias in your iCloud profile and preferences to do the, to accomplish the same thing. So, yeah, you could. I mean, there's yeah many ways to skin this particular cat. Good stuff. Why would you want to skin a cat? I don't know. It's mean. If you want to find out more about skinning cats, or preferably actually not that, and instead ask us questions or share tips about everything else we've discussed in the show, or other tech stuff that's related and really has nothing to do with skinning cats. In fact, you can use this email address for anything you want other than that. Uh, it is feedback at MacGeekab.com. And I'm pretty sure I heard Dave right, but I just want to make sure that he said feedback at MacGeekab.com. Yeah, I didn't say feedback at MacGeekab.com. I said feedback at MacGeekab.com just to get that straight. And you know who I'm talking to there, Michael. Uh, you can send us email, audio comments, pictures, and uh, screenshots, crash logs, anything you like. Uh, and if you want to call us instead, 206-666-GEEK is 43. 35. There is also the Facebooks. You can go to facebook.com slash MacGeekGab where you will see notifications about earth-shattering <laughs> events like when the next show is going to be, when the show notes are posted, and just general uh, discussion. Yeah. It's growing day by day as far as I can see. Fun stuff. Yeah, it is growing. Yeah. You can see it. You can find us on Twitter. Mac Geek Gab is the account for the show. John F. Braun is his. Pilot Pete's is that guy that almost made it today, or at least was somewhat nearby during the show. Uh, and I am Dave Hamilton, all on Twitter.com. And you can find us on Google Plus, too, but we don't have a custom URL. We have a custom URL for Mac Observer, so it's plus.google.com slash plus Mac Observer. Uh, Mac Geekab doesn't have one of those yet, so you can either find it through Mac Observer or you just search for it. Uh, if you are Google Plusified, and we post the events there, too. So Anybody still using that? There's a ton of people using it, dude. It's actually, it's great. It, it's way better than Facebook, I've found. Yeah. Eh, I'm just... I don't know. At some point, I'm like, you know, I just got to stick with one social network. Like AppNet is another thing I'll pop in every once in a blue moon, but it, it just seems kind of yep. MacGeekup.com slash app. Uh, sorry. App.net. Sorry. Oh. Uh, <laughs> App.net slash MacGeekup. Whatever it is. We're MacGeekup over at App.net as well. And the same things. Uh, John F. Braun and Dave Hamilton and, and all that good stuff. So, mm. uh, yeah. Well, that, that should do it. Okay, Michael Johnston is uh, the host of the We Have Communicators podcast. He is also the uh, founder and proprietor over there at getapplure.com. 
We'd like to thank him for converting the show to AAC and adding all those chapters that you folks love. You do love those chapters, right? You folks use those chapters. We want to make sure that you're uh, enjoying the chapters and getting full use out of them. So uh, let us know. We'll pass your feedback along to Michael. Even if your feedback is, I love it. That's fine. Send it to us. We want to hear about this. We want to hear how you're using the chapters. It's good. I use them when I do the show notes so I can skip the boring parts. Ah, perfect. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to. That's perfect. Uh, yeah. Cash can we edit that out? <laughs> no. Although I do have to edit these two together because I can't release them as one audio file. But, uh, but that's okay. C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y is cashfly.com's URL. They provide all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. BB Edit from Barebone Software, Text Expander, and PDF Pen from Smile, Gazelle.com, Squarespace.com slash MGG. And of course, Warby Parker, MGG is your coupon code there to get free expedited shipping. All through Backbeat Media. Have fun. Enjoy your week. I'm really glad we were able to finish the show today, John, with the power out. I had this feeling that this was going to be like, instead of a 40-minute gap, it was going to be like a three-day gap or something. But so, you know, sadly, what happened, Dave, though, as Yoda would say, in the storm, you got caught. Yeah. Made up. <laughs>